Welcome to Hypnotic History, the podcast about 20th century life in the United States. I'm Ashley. And I'm Logan. And today we're talking about air conditioning. So I guess I'll start this episode the same way I've been starting episodes and say, have you ever heard of air conditioning before? Uh, Air conditioning. It sounds familiar, (laughs) I think. Maybe just a little bit. I I think it's one of those things that's so ubiquitous that like it would be the only way you would find someone that's not familiar with it would be like someone that's lived in like just a uh, technology deprived area. Yeah. Or an area that doesn't particularly need air conditioning. Yeah, that's true. True. Did you grow up with air conditioning? Yes. Your entire childhood? Uh, Entire childhood. Nice. We we had air conditioning money. I think you asked your parents about air conditioning when they were growing up. Do you remember anything they told you? Um, uh, Mom's parents, I think they didn't get it until, I guess, maybe 80 or so, 1980. Uh, when my grandmother got sick, and uh, my I think my understanding was my grandfather was against it, but uh, he relented, and then after she passed away, he kept using it. He was totally fine with it. Uh, <laughs> Once you get a taste, I, th- I think that's that's how it goes. Uh, my dad's parents, I'm I, I'm trying to remember specifics. But I think maybe when they lived in Webster County, maybe they didn't have it. They they try to improvise with like a fan pulling in one window and a fan pushing out another window. Mm. But I think they might have gotten that when they moved to Madison. Yeah, I grew up with air conditioning as well. We didn't have central air in the house until I was either 17 or 18. Uh, I know it was either the end of high school or the beginning of college for me that they had central air installed. But we had a window unit in the kitchen, and then we had another window unit, because we're bougie like that, in my brother's room, which I thought I must have remembered wrong, because my brother's room, it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface to put another one in his room, because it is right off the kitchen at my parents' house. It would make more sense to put it in my parents' master bedroom, because they're the people paying for it, first of all. Yeah, they... They they get the spoils. (laughs) And also, their bedroom is in the back of the house. away. It's the furthest away from the kitchen. So I thought I must be remembering it wrong, but my mom told me that, no, I remembered it correctly, that Patrick got one in his room because he had breathing problems when he was young. So stupid kid with breathing problems getting all the cool air. (laughs) Just because you have asthma. Exactly. Uh. But my mom says that she didn't uh, grow up with air conditioning, of course, uh, being born kind of mid-century era. She didn't get air conditioning until she was pregnant with me. Oh, boy. That's that's a stretch. I'm the younger of the two children, so that meant that she went through a pregnancy and an infant without air conditioning. (laughs) Uh, But they got the window unit when she was pregnant with me. Uh, When she was a kid, she grew up even further south than here. And so I asked her how you dealt with that. Where did she live? Uh, She said that they spent some time in Texas and some time in Florida. And she said that houses were just made differently, that they had higher ceilings, that there were transoms above the window, or not above the windows, they are windows, transoms above the doors. 
that you could open to let the air circulate. And she said that sometimes when it was really hot, she would take her pillow and go sleep on the roof of the house. I I think Dad mentioned the uh, design of houses Mm -hmm. and and the transoms as a way to sort of circulate or or get things moving a little bit so it's not so punishing. She also said she remembered a lot of people sleeping on their porches. And I, I think you mentioned that to me before we recorded, and I wondered if that's why there was there's a lot of screened-in porches. Yeah, that's uh, it, a good guess. Maybe. It makes me think of the movie Rear Window. One of the neighbors that he can see, they take their, if I remember correctly, their mattress out onto the fire escape. To sleep at night. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing to think that's an improvement. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, let's talk about where air conditioning came from. Air conditioning as we know it today technically began in the early 20th century. So the 20th century is considered the first air conditioned century. But there were a lot of people working on similar machines much earlier. As far back as 1748, a professor at the University of Glasgow named William Cullen was able to evaporate liquids in a vacuum, which created a type of refrigeration technology. That's wild. It is. That is that is amazing. What was the year on that again? Uh, 1748. So, so this is before the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Just to put that, uh, yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Another early precursor to air conditioning happened during the 1800s. There was a man named Dr. John Gorey who invented a type of air conditioning system in 1842 to help people who were afflicted with malaria because he believed, as many people, I think the majority of the medical community believed at this time, that illnesses were connected to something called vapors. Oh, yeah. You got to balance the vapors and balance (laughs) the humors. Yeah. So there were vapors in the air that were vectors of disease, uh, according to them. And they thought that this could be abated by cleaning the atmosphere of corruptions. So it's like air purifying before. Yes. Yeah. He believed hot, humid air in general carried diseases and, quote, caused mental and physical deterioration. Well, I mean, when it's really, really hot and humid, I don't want to think or do anything, so... Yeah, I can understand where he's coming from on that, too, because hot, humid weather would encourage the growth of bacteria. That's that's true. Yeah, I feel like he kind of stumbled onto something without realizing it. Yeah. The device that he invented essentially blew air over buckets of ice... And this decreased the temperature and the humidity of the room. Uh, In case you're wondering where people got ice in 1842, because this will come into play in just a moment. uh, At that time, it was generally imported from northern areas like New York and Boston, where it was pulled from frozen lakes and insulated in ice houses. Sawdust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, They they figured out a way to pack it on ships with sawdust, so it would... Blows my mind Mm -hmm. that you would hack off a chunk of ice in the Arctic and and be able to ship it those distances and it get delivered and still be ice. I know. And who discovered sawdust did this and why did they think of that? I I read a story about it. I can't remember the guy's name, but he he noticed that sawdust seemed to have some insulation properties Mm -hmm. 
and I'm wanting to think if I'm remembering correctly, he did a trial run where he cut off cut cut off chunks of ice and then just packed sawdust all like filled the hold up with sawdust and then pulled into port and not that it was like the ice was still the same, but there was minimal melting to the point where it was viable to continue doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just, you know, I guess somehow he noticed something. Yeah, people are just observant. I When I read about different inventions, especially for the podcast, a lot of it does come down to just being very observant. And this is off topic, but very quickly, I want to say that Sophie has come down to join us. Sophie is our oldest girl. She is a 17-year-old kitty, so she's getting up there in years, and I can't believe she's come down to be part of the podcast today. She knows the room changed a little bit, so she has to check it out. Yeah, the furniture's moved around a little bit, so she has to make sure everything's okay. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, back to ice. Um, Dr. Gorey, who invented the air conditioning kind of thing in 1842, also invented an ice machine in 1848. That that's 40. So that's before the Civil War. Yes, <laughs> that's that's insane. But it didn't go well for him. First of all, his financial backer died the same year that he patented the machine. Ouch! But he was also heavily attacked by ice vendors. <laughs> big ice propaganda. Big yes. ice was working against him. <laughs> The Northern Ice Lobby told the New York Globe, There is Dr. Gorey, a crank down in Apalachicola, Florida, that thinks he can make ice by his machine as good as God Almighty. I just, Northern Ice Lobby, you kind of <laughs> lost me on that phrase. Like, I'm just imagining, like, no one wields political power quite like the Northern Ice yeah. Lobby. Like. <laughs> uh, so, you know, with their attacks on him and his financial backer dying, he didn't get anywhere with this machine. He he didn't make a cent off of it. It made ice <laughs> yeah, in is, 1848, oh, and he so didn't make a cent off of it. I oh, know. terrible. I know. Uh, by the way, Dr. Gorey also predicted the cooling of perishable foods that would allow them to be shared nationwide. People pro- probably thought he was a nut. Right. He was yeah. a visionary. Well. And if you're curious, you can view a model of Gorey's refrigeration machine at the Smithsonian. And there is another one at the John Gorey State Museum. In, and I'm probably saying this city wrong, as I say most things wrong, but I'll try. Apalachicola, Florida. Another precursor to air conditioning happened in movie theaters. They called it an, quote, immense pressure blower and an ice chamber of tremendous proportions. Uh, This was used in some theaters in the 1880s and 1890s to bring in outside air and pass it over underground ice before pushing it up through floor registers. Huh, that's, that's pretty inventive. Sometimes they would add a sponge that had been soaked in perfume. Oh, so, yeah, aromatic. Yeah, so it would smell good, but... As someone who doesn't like perfumey smells, I think that would be awful. I wonder if maybe it was also okay because you're dealing with silent films. That's true, so, so having, the noise. Because I was thinking all that noise, but if if the movie, which I'm going to push my glasses up my nose, silent films weren't totally silent, 
uh, it's not as much of a distraction. Oh, you know what? I think I might have even gotten that wrong. I might have inadvertently said movie theater, but it was just theaters. Oh, just theaters. Okay. Yeah, because I don't think that movie houses quite existed yet. I don't know when the first one came out, but I don't think they came out pre-1900. Although there were some films, maybe, toward the end of the 19th century. But these were just the regular theaters. Sorry. Okay. Uh, So I guess the actors needed to speak up. I don't know if it was noisy. It probably was. Uh, I have seen some statements and I actually kind of thought about this myself to the effect of people not being as bothered by the heat in the past before air conditioning because the planet was just generally cooler than it is today. Uh, And while it is true that average temperatures have risen over time, there were still individual days with extremely high temperatures and summers in certain regions were still pretty hot. Yeah. Um, So people did suffer from the heat. They didn't have air conditioning, um, but they weren't just getting along fine. It's not like um, today, if you took away our air conditioning, we would really be suffering because we know what we're missing out on. (laughs) That would be terrible. They didn't know what they were missing out on, but it was still really hot and miserable for them. Labor leader and minister Charles Stelzel, Stetzel, Uh, in the early 1900s described one August in New York City as the harvest season for death's reaper. Oh, nice. That needs to be a metal album. (laughs) Write that down. Need to write a a heavy metal song on that. People who were elderly or otherwise uh, sick, as well as infants, particularly in the city, suffered higher death rates in the heat. Oh, man. The heat was also a problem in cities because it intensified unsanitary conditions, like piled garbage, for example. English novelist Lady Mary Dufus, I'm hoping it's Duffus. Oh, hope Duffus, yes. <laughs> Hardy wrote in 1880, in New York's less sacred precincts, the death toll is terrible during these hot spells, sometimes amounting from sunstroke alone to 20 in a single day. Oh, man. And as we will see um, throughout this episode, talking about air conditioning, class, like social class, kind of played a factor in certain things. And one little tidbit that I kind of liked is that in apartment buildings, the lower floor tenants were typically uh, slightly better class. Because, yeah, heat rises, so and, that would be yeah. better. And they considered the yard of a building to be theirs. So if the lower class people from upper floors tried to go out in the courtyards or other like yard-like areas, they were kind of shunned for it. But these people got hit by karma on hot nights because the upper floor people claimed the roofs as theirs. Uh, so <laughs> and so yeah. on hot nights when people would want stay cooler by sleeping on the roof, they scorned those upper class lower floor people. So they got theirs. So it's like Snowpiercer, but in a building. <laughs> yeah, we're making our way. I don't know which way would be preferable, though. It's just a constant push and pull between the top and bottom. It is true. There were a lot of ways that people tried to stay cool before air conditioning. And I'm going to read a few to you. And I want you to tell me whether you think that they were actual methods for beating the heat without okay. air conditioning. Day trips to mountain towns. Uh. Yes. Yes. Cooking and baking during cooler evening hours. Uh, yes. Yes. By necessity. Mm-hmm. Breathing ether. 
Uh, yes. No, oh. sorry. <laughs> I mean, if you're unconscious, you can't really. I just. It, <laughs> it seems just dangerous and dumb enough that they would have been like, yeah, we're going to do that. We hadn't talked about ether in a while, so I had to bring it back. Opening windows at night. Definitely. Yes. Blowing fans across ice. Uh, yes. Yes. Attending nudist clubs. Uh, yes. No. Oh, okay. Swimming. Yes. Yes. Climbing into the boughs of trees. Yes. No, oh. although people did sometimes go to public parks to sleep. Um, not just people without homes, but people who had homes would sometimes go to parks and sleep. Eating cold foods. Uh, yes. Yes. Hanging out in basements. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, that's I, just to do a side tangent, but I think uh, my mom's family would sort of live in the basement during the hottest months. Mm -hmm. uh, I never got that confirmed from her, but I seem to remember that like they would basically like the living room would move downstairs. Yeah. Uh, during that time. And several years ago, we lost air conditioning. Um, I can't remember if it was the air just went out or if it was a power thing. But going downstairs, it was over 90 degrees upstairs, and yeah. going downstairs was still quite comfortable. Yeah, it managed to stay about 15, 20 degrees cooler down here. Uh-huh. And we were able to use some fans to move it, and it was, it was, it was, I'm not going to say pleasant, but it was big improvement from staying oh, yeah. upstairs. Oh, yeah. What about spending time at the butcher shop? Oh, because they have, yeah, I like that. I, I want that to be true. It's not true, but oh. thank you for saying that I have a good imagination. I, I like to imagine. It's <laughs> like, I need to just stay here a few more minutes and figure out what. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. We're not getting anything. Yeah. <laughs> what about spin or hanging damp cloths in doorways? Uh, yes. Yes. What about wearing wet clothing? That seems fraught with peril, but maybe. Like, yes. Yeah. How about drinking buttermilk? Oh, gosh. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Uh, this idea came from colonial India, where buttermilk was served spiced, which I think sounds yummy, but maybe no. not during the summer. I don't think that sounds good at all. Uh, oh. <laughs> the adults in my scout troop would frequently have buttermilk at summer camp. And I remember after I you know, was 18 and I was an, a, considered an adult, it's like, ooh, I'm going to finally try buttermilk. And the scoutmaster was like, you better start with a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I just poured myself just a little bit, and it was the most disgusting stuff. I, I still to this day know. <laughs> I don't know how anyone could drink that. Maybe they were drinking buttermilk at camp as a holdover from these times when there was no air conditioning, like it didn't exist. I, I uh, wondered and people about were doing that. that. Uh, but they would usually, a couple of them, the older uh, scout assistant scoutmasters would have like a half gallon of buttermilk. Uh huh. And I'd see them occasionally drink it. And I was just, uh, you know, it's like, oh, that's, I associated that with like, well, that's when you're an adult. And, yeah. And I finally got to that point. I was like, well, I guess I'm not an adult because I cannot even get this stuff down. <laughs> it is so disgusting. Well, that might have been something that they picked up from their parents or their grandparents as a way to beat the heat. Uh, by the way, even doctors of that time recommended drinking buttermilk oh, in hot weather. <laughs> there were also, that is the end of our true and false, but I also want to share a few inventions that helped people stay cool. Uh, one of my favorite is a fan chair. 
So the fan chair allowed people to control a fan above their head with their feet. So the foot controls were kind of like a sewing machine, and that would control a fan. It was invented by Philadelphia instrument maker John Cram in the 1780s, and George Washington paid 32 shillings and six pence for one. They should have made it like a uh, bicycle power. Oh, interesting. That would have... Yeah, yeah, but that uses a lot more movement, whereas just like pumping pedals, yeah. you don't have to move a whole lot. So if you want to see it, it is on display at Mount Vernon, by the way. Benjamin Franklin is also said to have owned one. Of course he did. Of course he did. he didn't try to build one. I know. <laughs> there is also something called a punka which is a hand-operated sort of ceiling fan that originated in colonial India, it required a worker to constantly pull on a cord uh, that moved a large piece of fabric to and fro across the room I think along I've the ceiling. Seen that in movies and TV shows. Yeah. The, yeah. So this started in India, but it became popular in the American South, um, where some poor, uh, well, I guess depending on the time period, some poor worker or some poor slave had to stand and pull the cord constantly in the heat to fan the room. Booker T. Washington recalls being able to eavesdrop on news of the Civil War while he was working this job, though. Yeah. yeah. Because they wanted to be cool while they talked, and you had to have somebody to pull that cord. So it worked out for him. Many people, uh, as we mentioned before, slept on porches, and this included William Howard Taft, who had a screened-in sleeping porch built on top of the White House in 1910. Can you imagine? Yeah, that's pretty wild. (laughs) I can't imagine nowadays a president being allowed to go up onto the roof of the White House and sleep. Yeah, that does seem... uh also, I, I would love for someone to document all of the architectural changes that have gone into the White House. Mm-hmm. Like I know that one time there was a there was a pool, there was bowling alley, there was yeah. It, it's gone through a lot of changes, and uh, it would be fascinating to see. Well, in addition to the screened-in porch on the White House, a lot of other people were sleeping on porches as well. And in 1916, an issue of Popular Science included a small sleeping porch that you could install in a window. Uh, This was meant for children who lived in apartment buildings. I would be so scared. I was going to say, is it just like a a cage that hangs out? it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's so scary. Uh, Buildings before air conditioning, as we talked about, were also a little different. They often had cloth awnings over every window. So even in big cities where buildings might have lots and lots of windows, if you look at pre-air conditioning photos, you'll see that even though there's a gazillion windows on a big building, each one probably has a cloth awning over it. And that's something that you wouldn't see later on. There was also a type of home. I'm curious if you've heard of this. It's called a dog trot home. Uh, maybe if you describe it. Okay. Dog trot homes had a breezeway between the kitchen and sleeping areas of the home. Okay. I think I've seen that. Yeah. I, I didn't know that was the name for it. But yeah, I've seen where they have like little, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess this kept it cool because there was more air uh, area for the air to circulate because you have that breezeway. But also, I wonder if it mattered that you were separating, physically separating the kitchen from the rest of the house. That probably helped. 
the the kitchen stuff without air conditioning, I think, is just absolutely unbearable. Mm-hmm. Like that's I have the most sympathy for that. Yeah, uh, I think I told you about the time my dad and I stayed in a cabin that had a wood stove, and you know, just for kicks, we decided to use it. However, we were doing it in October, in an upper elevation. And it wasn't that bad, really. Yeah. And But we talked to ourselves about how, like, yeah, that was fun and novel, but if we had to do that in June or July, I would be finding out how to cook without a stove. <laughs> like, yeah. Because even, even at those chillier times of the year, we worked up a pretty good sweat in the kitchen. What were you making? Uh, I see. We, we did a whole meal. We did, uh, did a cake, did bread, uh, cooked off the top, off the range or part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did something in the oven part. I'm trying to remember squash. I think, yeah, bake some squash. Yeah. But we, we got a good little fire going in the, in the tender box and, uh, even had a little, we put a little fan in the, uh, window to draw air in and out. Oh, clever. But still it was, it was, it was toasty in there. Yeah. And that was October and we just can't imagine trying to do that in. In the summer. Oh gosh. But how else are you going to get your meal? In not to mention, you have to do that to preserve food yeah. for canning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'd be it, oh, be disgusting. Well, air conditioning came about in the early 1900s, or at least air conditioning as we recognize it today. So that was the beginning of the road to comfort for all those poor people, especially the ones slaving away in the kitchen. It was invented by a man named Willis Carrier. Willis Carrier was born on a farm in... Angola, New York in 1876. And even as a child, he had experiences that kind of set him on the right path to be an inventor. He would often help his father fix farm machines. He was also inspired by his mother, who was a school teacher and often worked on the indoor machines, like fixing the family sewing machine or clock. His mother taught him to figure things out for himself and used cut-up apples to teach him math, which is said to have taught him that problems need to be broken down into pieces. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Whether or not that's true, it's a great story. It is a great story. I want to <laughs> believe it's true. Carrier won a contest that helped him pay for college, which allowed him to attend Cornell University, where he studied electrical engineering. And his first post-college job was at Buffalo Forge Company. One day, a printing company hired Buffalo Forge to troubleshoot a problem for them. When the weather was hot and humid, their printing suffered because the ink would smear on the page instead of setting, and the paper itself would swell. Carrier was able to solve this problem by cooling the air using coils filled with cold water. Uh, And this not only cooled down the room, but it solved the humidity problem because as the air cooled, it can, the vapors, uh, not the disease vapors, (laughs) but the literal vapors that were causing all the humidity as the air cooled would condense down into liquid and form condensation on the coils. So that drew the water out of the air, making it drier so that the ink would set and the paper wouldn't swell and all that good stuff. In 1906, he patented this as the apparatus for treating air. (laughs) Air treatment. I love it. (laughs) Yes. Carrier continued to work on improving his machine. uh, And one of the next businesses that got this new and improved machine was Chronicle Cotton Mills in Belmont, North Carolina, which installed 
this ver new and improved version of the air conditioner in 1906. The device sprayed cool water into the air, which cooled the temperature, which changed the water vapor into liquid, which, of course, separated it and removed it from the air, making the air drier. So it's sort of the same way he just... It's the same method of cooling the air so the water condenses, but he just did it a different way by spraying cool water directly into the air. Um, and this solved the humidity problem that they were having. There were a lot of businesses at that time that were attracted to technology that could make the air around their products dry and cool. This included cloth makers, medicine manufacturers, film manufacturers, department stores, soap factories, bakeries, any business that you can think of where they need cool, dry air to keep the product nice. But uh, surprisingly to, I think, a lot of people, early on, air conditioning wasn't about providing cold air. It was, as we just talked about, it was more about keeping the humidity. I was going to say dry it out uh -huh. so it's not so... Uh... And that is why they adopted the term air conditioning because you're changing the condition of the air. You're not necessarily cooling it. It just so happened that their method of controlling the humidity did cool the air, but that wasn't what most businesses were looking for. They just wanted drier air. In fact... Some air conditioners actually made the air hotter um, or would make the air more humid to improve the handling of products like chewing gum. And everyone that's from the deep south says more humid. <laughs> you want to make it more humid? Uh, air conditioning actually didn't start to focus heavily on cooling as a selling point until after World War I. Wow. Would you like to take a guess at what kind of business would be interested in air conditioning for cooling purposes? I'm thinking food, something food-related maybe. Uh, actually, it was uh, movie theaters. Oh, movie yeah. theaters. My brain glitched out for a second, um, which makes kind of sense to me because... I really associate movie theaters um, decades past of places where people would go to beat the heat because they often uh, advertised yeah, yeah, that they I, had air conditioning. That, that was kind of a selling point. And I always wonder how many bad movies got watched a lot just because yes. it was hot. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, I'm going to slog through this yeah. thing. And So this started during the 20s. Carrier Engineering Corporation started focusing uh, not just on industries, but on providing air conditioning for comfort and cooling. And one of their first customers were movie theaters. Um, but there were also other entertainment venues who were interested in it. Madison Square Garden in New York City opened in 1925 and was one of Carrier's biggest customers. In fact, they used the air conditioning to create an indoor ice rink. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> Such businesses were taking advantage of a new kind of air conditioning called the centrifugal chiller, which used a fan to move air around the room. Air conditioning installed in theaters during the 20s made them advertise that as the draw, you know, as we mentioned a moment ago. They would say that going to the movie theater was like a vacation on a mountaintop. Yeah, I bet it did feel that way. 
They would use painted icicles, fake snowy pine trees, and signs advertising 20 degrees cooler inside to get people to come in and buy a ticket to see a movie. By the mid-20s, summer overtook winter as the peak movie-going season, by the way. Because, yeah, everybody was rushing in there. Hey, we got to sit through the the creeping terror. Fine, it'll at least be be comfortable. Yeah. (laughs) By 1937, Carrier had installed air conditioning in 461 movie houses. Yeah, I could see that, like, once one movie place gets it, and the other ones see the business pick up. They're like, "Well, we got to make that investment. We got to, we got to go for that." Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because it really must have drawn in a lot of customers because uh, other early adopters, like hotels and trains, for example, only used air conditioning in public spaces because their profits had to recoup the cost of the system itself. Right. Um, So putting it in private spaces like uh, hotel rooms or in the private train cars would cost so much more money. And were you really getting that much more business to pay for this expensive unit? While theaters, on the other hand, easily recouped their costs, probably because the room, your air conditioning, the theater itself holds so many people at a time. The 1920 census was the first time that the urban population outnumbered the rural. And for this reason, air conditioning for cooling and comfort started in big cities, which is counterintuitive uh, in a way. It's good business because more people are in the cities, but the cities weren't necessarily the hottest places. You know, for example, the uh, southern United States is the hottest area um, well, and I guess some places out west beat even that. Um, yet we were seeing air conditioners first in places like Chicago or New York, which were far more temperate. Um, I know they get hot, but they don't get hot as as hot as some other places. Yeah. Um, even in the cities, though, it was sort of a social class thing going on, which is why movie theaters were so big, because upper-class people didn't have as much need to go find air conditioning. They had spacious, comfortable homes. Uh, They could escape the heat by going to the shore or going to the mountains. In fact, there were a lot of shops in the city that catered to the elite uh, who closed during the summer entirely because they just knew their clients were going to be away. Wow. Yeah. It's just... I like to imagine they followed them. Like uh, yeah, took, took like we'll a, just go with you to the a, mountains. A, yeah, it took like a trailer and set up shop. And so movie theaters were a really big deal having air conditioning because this was a place where anybody could go. So if you were lower class and you were stuck in the city, you maybe had a small apartment that got really hot and you couldn't, you know, say, oh, it's really hot. I'm going to go to the mountains during August you know, you're not that kind of person, you could go to the movie theater and cool down. But just as class had restricted people's access to beating the heat without air conditioning, uh, even with air conditioning, there were other social issues, the biggest one being race. Even in movie houses where lower classes could sit in air-conditioned rooms that were often, by the way, ornately decorated, these old movie theaters were so pretty. They do look amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So even in these places that seem so egalitarian where everybody can go, black patrons were often given worse seating 
They had to sometimes attend at designated times, so they didn't have as much control over when and how they could go. Um, Or sometimes there were just completely separate theaters for them. And black theaters were often not air-conditioned. I was going to say, those were the ones that didn't get it. Yeah. Another sign of separation of classes or certain demographics of people happened in department stores. Department stores largely had air conditioning in the 20s and 30s, um, but none had it store-wide before World War II. So before it was store-wide, it was most common to put it in the basement where the bargains were typically sold. So you've heard of bargain basements? I guess that's, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. And this may have been because they still expected upper-class patrons to leave the city during the summer. So we don't need to put air conditioning in those areas. We'll put it in the bargain basement where these other people will be shopping this summer. There was also a commonly held belief that gentlewomen were less affected by heat. The saying goes, horses sweat, gentlemen perspire, but ladies glow. merely glow. Yes, I've uh, heard that. I've heard that phrase, yes. So not true. <laughs> or maybe I'm just not a lady. <laughs> Perhaps for this reason, they didn't market the air conditioning in their stores as cooling, but purifying the air, by the way. Um, so that people who wanted to beat the heat, of course, were going to go to the bargain basements and stay there longer and buy more stuff. But if there did happen to be any upper-class people around... We had air purifiers. It's healthy. We know you don't mind the heat, but come in and get the pure air. Pure air. (laughs) Another adopter of air conditioning uh, had to do with sports. Uh, And I've noticed a trend of a lot of adopters being related to entertainment. And I think that might be because going back to movie theaters, it is uh, one big space where you can put a lot of people and recoup that cost easier. That's yeah, my theory. Of like, because imagine trying to run air conditioning to a bunch of individual rooms mm-hmm. instead of just one large space. In 1956, the Cincinnati Reds added air conditioning to their dugouts. Oh, wow. They also added it to broadcasting booths and interestingly, two thirds of the press box. <laughs> just two thirds. The visitors didn't get it. Well, they said. Quote, some sports writers still prefer to hear the noise of the crowd and feel the midsummer heat. They, yeah, they want the, uh, the, the tangible experience. They want to be close to the, uh, the atmosphere and energy. <laughs> so you get your one-third. <laughs> Man. In 1965, the Houston Astrodome was created, and it was entirely air-conditioned. That was uh, That's still... Uh, Amazing. An amazing feat of, of engineering and, and construction, I think, to just completely dome even a football field, baseball field, either way, just strikes mm-hmm. me as insane. I agree. Ironically, a stadium in Syracuse called the Carrier Dome, uh, because it was given money to be created through the Carrier Corporation, <laughs> which is the air conditioning people. Uh, So the carrier dome was not air conditioned. (laughs) Uh, Because the grant from the carrier corporation to build it was not enough money to put in air conditioning. Ouch. That's not good advertising. It's named after you and it doesn't use your technology. That that is really a missed opportunity. I totally agree. That would... I I feel like the board of... uh, 
whoever's running the company would be like, uh, yeah, it's, it's named after us, but it's not air conditioned. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's a black eye. It doesn't make any sense. Well, air conditioning is moving to other places at this point too. So we've started with industries and factories, moved on to certain businesses like hotels and stores and movie theaters in the thirties. It moved to transportation, particularly trains. Trains started using air conditioning in the 1930s, but it was difficult for them because the equipment was really large and heavy. Uh, And as mentioned before, it was also really expensive. And it requires so much energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that it's like it's it's more expensive to heat than it is to cool. It's still very energy driven to cool something down. Mm -hmm. And you imagine putting that on a train. Where are you going to put all the what's going to power it? Uh, Yeah, I don't know what powered it. That is a really good question. Well, in addition to these practical concerns, another problem on trains is that passengers didn't like that they couldn't open the windows because you had to keep the windows shut to make the air conditioning worthwhile. I think all of us in our age bracket are familiar that when the air conditioning is running, you don't leave the door open, you don't leave the window open Mm -hmm. in the house or a car because you're just throwing money out, right? Like, has everyone's father yelled at them about, (laughs) I'm not trying to cool down the outside (laughs) the neighborhood. And exactly. Although I was taken more by the idea that in the past people were opening windows on a moving train, which shouldn't have surprised me because I've seen movies, you know, people are opening their train windows, but it just seems fraught to me. Something going that fast. A little dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) The first air conditioned car was on display at the 1933 Chicago World Fair. It was called the Dimaxion, which is a combination of dynamic maximum tension. Okay. Okie dokie. <laughs> and it's super futuristic. Um, I really suggest that people Google it to see what it looked like. It was like this uh, egg-shaped futuristic-looking car. The first air conditioner car, the first air conditioned cars that consumers could buy came out in the 1930s, um, but they weren't popular right off the bat. Although many cars by the mid 50s could get it installed on a new car standard. In 1958, New Yorkers talk of the town section by John Updike, by the way, quoted a cabbie as saying, in the summer, it was a nightmare. Now I look forward to a day's work. I can hardly wait to get out of the apartment. No more noise, no more dirt, no more heat. It makes you feel, you know, different, almost distinguished. You'd be surprised how many people see the blue sticker saying air-conditioned on the window and stop me and ask just to be driven around a while to cool off. I figure business has improved 25% since I got my unit in. On top of that, my tips are bigger. I, I could imagine being just miserably hot and you get to sit in an air-conditioned car for like 15 minutes. You'd be like, here's $50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm feeling very generous just to feel this good. Or being a cab driver and y- yeah. you've been miserable all this time and now the place that you work all day is air-conditioned. Well, I remember mom talking about uh, going to Spruce Knob, which is a location in West Virginia. It's a highest point. And it was just dirt roads, and the cars didn't have air conditioning, so you'd have to roll the window oh, down. Oh no! And then if if there was a coal truck coming, 
or if any any vehicle really was coming the opposite way, roll up the windows, roll up the windows, because then dust and dirt is going to yeah. come in. And so getting air conditioning and getting to keep the windows up, mm-hmm. oh, that's nice. And I have to say from personal experience that it is much better for hair. Yeah. Uh, I have long hair, and the air conditioning went out on my car a couple of months ago, and keeping the windows down was, whew, a big rat's nest for hair by the time I was done getting anywhere. Uh, the same article, by the, which, by the way, as a reminder, was written in 1958, predicted that in about five years, all the cabs will have air conditioning, and it's going to be real big business, real big. Everybody's going to have air conditioning. Yeah. It's going to take off. <laughs> air conditioning for cars represented over half the market by 1969, by wow. the way. Um, but at that time, it was really expensive. If you had AC in your car, that feature alone accounted for about 15% of the car's cost. I, it probably was a bit of a status symbol. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I... I'd, I'd love to know when air conditioning became standard on cars. Mm-hmm. At what point could you no longer say no air conditioning to save money? I read a source that said during the 70s it was super common. Uh, I also read, dur- but I don't know because I wasn't alive. I also read a source that said by 1999, um, like 99 point something percent of cars had air conditioning in the United States. So, but I don't know at what point it really took off. It seems like it just steadily grew. Until they reached a point where it was just more cost effective just, just to install it. Exactly, have just it to have there it there. Instead yeah. of having a model without it. Now, you would probably think that with air conditioning in all of these places, people would be overjoyed. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. People don't like change. There were a multitude of different reactions to air conditioning in general. Some were good, some were not. Uh, Some people thought trying to control the environment was against God's will. But But couldn't we make that case about like any human technology? Yes, yeah. Um, Some people felt that America's increasing reliance upon machines and technology were divorcing us from nature. It's going to make us soft. Exactly. The commies will run over us if we keep doing them this path. There was also a widely held belief that the upper class was more innately able to handle the heat. Uh, So coping really had to do more with having an evolved state of mind. In a 1910 New York Times article, Dr. Thomas Darlington, who was New York's health commissioner, advised, Much may be done by living sober, orderly lives, not hurrying about our duties, taking life as easily as possible, quietly, not being excited, keeping cool, fussing and fretting, or as some aptly say, stewing about the weather gets on one's mind and nerves so that sleep is impossible. You just got to think cool thoughts. It's all in your head. (laughs) When air conditioning was installed in the Capitol building in 1928, signs were actually posted to assure legislators that everything was okay. (laughs) The signs said... The sensation of chill experienced upon entering the Senate chamber is due principally to the dryness of the air causing the evaporation of the slight amount of moisture on the skin. No fear may be felt by the occupants of the Senate chamber from the conditions produced by this new system of ventilation and air conditioning. No fear. They didn't fear it, I guess, but some people didn't like it. In 1929... 
Democratic Senator John E. Rankin from Mississippi lodged a complaint. He said, The atmosphere is too cool in this room. Yesterday it was 75 by thermometer and 91 degrees on the outside. 15 or 20 degrees difference is too much. This is regular Republican atmosphere. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it is enough to kill anybody if it continues. I wonder if Strom Thurmond or Robert C. Byrd signed off on that. Well, he was reportedly applauded when he oh, said God. this. <laughs> it's like those things you see on the internet today where it's like really tall tales that obviously never happened, but we say they all end with, and then everybody clapped. Yes. Yeah, so he said this, and apparently everybody clapped. I'm sure there was at least somebody that was like, man, come on. <laughs> yeah, come Can on. We, we got a good thing going Dude. here. You keep it down. <laughs> Air conditioning was installed in the White House in 1929 for Herbert Hoover and upgraded in 1934 for Roosevelt. A memo from an employee said that the president, quote, had a strong dislike of air conditioning and never hesitated to say so. The outspoken comments that he frequently made to the press gave the installation some pretty bad publicity. FDR speechwriter Samuel Rosenman said, The president did not like air conditioning. It seemed to affect his sinuses. He did not even use an electric fan. He never seemed to mind the heat. At least he seldom turned the air conditioning on. I can see if you have breathing issues wanting more humid air because dry air could irritate your sinuses or other breathing problems. Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate that. Usually sometimes during the winter months when it gets dry, we'll set up a humidifier uh, Mm -hmm. just to sort of balance that out. But I don't know, man. Which is interesting because... um, you know, going back to the start of the episode, my brother had an air conditioner in his room because he had breathing problems, but it might have been allergic in nature. So if you didn't have to open up the windows for cool air and it was sort of filtering the air that comes yeah. through, maybe that it, helped him. It was conditioning the air. Yeah, it conditioned it. Yeah. <laughs> There were physicians who lauded air conditioning because it got rid of what was perceived to be a bad air. In Chicago, where movie house owners Balaban and Katz hired a meatpacking refrigeration company to install cooling in three of their theaters between 1917 and 1921, the city's health commissioner said that people who were pregnant and people with weak lungs needed to go to these movie houses as the air there was, quote, purer than Pike's Peak. That's a bold claim. It is. However, not all doctors were on board. Dr. Carrie Pratt McCord wrote to Pullman Company's house physician in 1936 to warn about, quote, clinical disturbances resulting from exposure to unsuited air conditions. Another complaint some people had was that air conditioning was actually too cold, which sounds silly, but it was apparently a legitimate problem because they couldn't control it very well. I was going to say it was probably just off or on. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah. Carrier Corporation co-founder L. Logan Lewis conceded that early air conditioning merely substituted one discomfort for another. Some people went to the movies with newspapers so they could wrap it around their legs (laughs) Um, because all the cold air being pushed up from the floor was just too cold. Grab your coat. Get your long johns on. We're going to go see a movie. (laughs) To fix this problem, Lewis created a bypass system that cooled less air twice as much and then pumped it through ceiling registers instead of the floor. 
New York City's Rivoli Theater was the first one to install this system in 1925, where they advertised that the air in the theater was always 69 degrees. The system cost them $100,000 in 1925. And I'm curious what the operating cost Mm -hmm. was. And, well, although their most expensive movie ticket was only 75 cents, they managed to recoup their investment in three months. Wow. Yeah. Their ads said that they provided refrigerated mountain ozone. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Another theater manager uh, who loved air conditioning was Newark's Branford Theater Manager. He insisted that when the air conditioning was installed in his theater in 1927, that it be set as cold as possible. And when patrons wrote in with their complaints, he used those complaints in an ad. (laughs) I guess to prove that they were really so cold. So cold. They see how cold it is. They, these guys can't take it. Yeah, isn't it great? There were also uh, takes on air conditioning in the home, which we haven't quite yet talked about. Results of surveys conducted uh, in 1954 by House Beautiful and House and Home magazines in Dallas and Houston uh, revealed the following feedback When we have a party now, the men leave on their coats. I don't know if that's good or bad. We run our machine 24 hours a day. It costs us much less than we'd thought, and we save part of the cost in fewer restaurant bills. From a pediatrician, uh, they got the following comment. There is no doubt that air conditioning is better for children. And the movies and the automobile broke up family life. But television and air conditioning are bringing Bring, families together again. Bringing them back. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. So how far back do you think private homes with air conditioning go? Uh, 50s? Uh, that is when it became most popular. So that is a good guess. Starting in the 50s, there were more and more people with air conditioning in their homes. However, if we're just going on mere technicalities, the oldest air-conditioned home was built in 1913. Wow. By financier Charles G. Gates. He built it for his wife. The house itself was a three-story mansion that cost a million dollars, and the AC in it cost $10,000. It was designed by Willis Carrier himself, by the way. Compare this to, so the air conditioning alone was $10,000. By 1955, a person could buy a house that already had air conditioning for $10,000. Oh, wow. So the house and the air conditioner together would be as much as he paid for the air conditioning alone in 1913. Uh, There were several different uh, air conditioning units, like not central air, but just unit air conditioners that hit the market starting in the 30s. In 1932, Carrier created a portable room cooler that cost $255. It was essentially just a box on wheels that held 300 pounds of ice and had blowers. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, because if it was actually air conditioning, where's the drainage? Where's, yeah. But if it's, so it's just a box of ice with a fan. Yes, it promised to cool a 300-square-foot room for 10 hours, as long as you didn't expose it to sun, electrical lights, or a lot of people. Because <laughs> I guess that would melt it. Yeah, gotta keep the ice going. At the 1933 Chicago's World Fair, visitors could see a futuristic crystal house that, among other amenities, had air conditioning. 
The fair also had the House of Tomorrow that included air conditioning, but the House of Tomorrow's air conditioning system worked so poorly that the master bedroom eventually had to be closed off to visitors because of excessive heat. So that's not very good advertisement, is it? Uh, There was a 1934 Frigidaire brochure that says, Today, oh, actually, I want to do my old-timey ad voice for no apparent reason, because when I first read this, my mind went to that voice. So I have to do that voice on here. Today, as you walk along any city street in summertime, you notice signs which read like this. It's cool inside. This store is air-conditioned or dine-in comfort. You see similar signs upon trains. In a few years, these signs will disappear because of this significant fact. Conditioned air will be universal and taken for granted. They're not wrong. They are not wrong. They were a little early. When was the last time that at a hotel or movie place, there was a sign that said, hey, air-conditioned rooms. We have air-conditioning, yeah. We have air-conditioning. So that prediction was from 1934, and they were a little ahead of their time, but they were going in the right direction. Uh, In 1935, Popular Mechanics uh, advertised a unit that was advertised as, quote, compact and so low in height that it fits below the windowsill of the average home or office. A self-contained air conditioning unit is ready for the market, almost at the touch of a button. It is possible to have the air cooled, dehumidified, circulated, and filtered. This was followed by 1939's GE unit, which was $750, and it was designed to match the room aesthetically because it was housed in a radio cabinet. Another unit uh, around a similar time, this is a mid-century type unit, but I don't know the exact year, was created by International Harvester of all businesses. Okay. Um, They created a unit with a changeable decorative front panel so that you could match that fabric to the rest of your room. That's that's interesting. That's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. At the 1939 New York World's Fair, Carrier built a giant air-conditioned igloo. Oh, wow. That showcased air conditioning that could fit in a person's home. In the igloo, there were two 48-foot-tall thermometers by the entrance. One was labeled, Nature's Temperature, Where You Stand. And the other was labeled, Carrier Air Conditioning in the Igloo. They also pulled a stunt where they put 200, or not 200, 700. They got 700 allergy sufferers. And they put them inside the igloo at one time to demonstrate the effectiveness of air conditioning on breathing. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it worked. Uh, well, you know what? Uh, I think it probably did, but air conditioning still had a bit of a ways to go. It still hadn't really taken off in the 30s uh, for homes, for private homes. And even into the 40s, um, it was still gaining momentum. In 1945, Life magazine published an article called Air Conditioning, After the War, It Will Be Cheap Enough to Put in Private Homes. By the 50s, it really had taken off. Uh, Life magazine predicted correctly. It was, as you predicted, a symbol status. A symbol of status, sorry. Status symbol. We have money. Look what we have. (laughs) Um, And this was made more so by the fact that they were really highly visible to other people. People could see if you had an air conditioning unit sticking out of your window. 
1953's Fortune magazine said, The rump of a room conditioner bulging out of the window is becoming as unexclusive a social symbol as the television aerial overhead. So whereas we would think of these things as eyesores, like, oh, I get TV reception, but I have to have this big antenna. I get air conditioning, but now I've got this unit sticking out of my window. Um, Well, that actually just advertised to other people that you had these things, so they're actually good. Yeah. I wonder if anybody tried to like put up a fake antenna or put up a fake thing to make it seem like you have air conditioning. Oh, that's good. <laughs> like just grab some spare parts and put something together to make it look like. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah, see Yeah, look, happening. we got that outside unit going there. By 1960, according to the census, um, which, by the way, this was the first census to ask about air conditioning, more than six and a half million homes reported that they had an air conditioner of some kind. This was actually a surprise to the air conditioning industry because they hadn't predicted that that many people would buy them for their homes. They thought that since suburbs were generally cooler than the city and people who had the money to buy air conditioners could go to country clubs or go on vacation Uh, when it was hot so they could afford it but they didn't really need it, that these things would make the public resistant to buying air conditioners for their homes. Uh, People who were able to afford air conditioning were also more likely to have larger houses that allowed for cross-ventilation, screened-in porches, or landscaping that shielded them from the sun. So they had in no way predicted how popular air conditioning for homes would be. They thought that it was a new thing that would pick up over time, but not quite this much this fast. There were some obstacles, though, and one of them was power. AC um, really put a strain on power grids of the time that weren't used to handling that kind of load. Uh, And another problem is that buildings were architecturally designed without air conditioning in mind. There's so no to retrofit duct, yeah. them There's was no tricky. duct work. You've got to put all that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, some companies like Carrier commissioned house designs with AC systems in mind. So then they could, I don't know, give out those house designs and be like, if you're building a house, use this. Yeah. And you'll be able to put an air conditioner in it from the start. Air conditioning businesses advertised that your family will be happier and more together if you air condition your home. Ads also highlighted features aimed at dispelling the downsides of ACs. So whereas air conditioning units were known for being really noisy, they would put out ads saying that they were kitten quiet, which kittens are not quiet. I was going to say, <laughs> I, I disagree with kittens are quiet, and I disagree that these early air conditioners were that quiet. Yeah, like, I agree. We have a very modern system, and it's pretty loud. It is. Um, they were also sometimes advertised as being sleek and slim Ooh. to combat the uh, notion that air conditioners were like bulky and large and not nice to look at. Um, and they were air conditioning was also associated with kind of making smells uh, that you didn't like. So some of them advertised having odor control. They were also often advertised as being so easy to use that the woman in the ad only needs to press a button. And yes, it was uh, always a woman. That's right. So Even easy. a woman a wo- can use it. A woman it. can use it. Oh. Uh, interestingly... Most of the early ads for air conditioners in the home were aimed towards women, but at 
ad companies, they had a notion in the mid-century, which might still be a notion today, but I, I would like to say I doubt it, but who knows. Um, there was this notion that you need to categorize the appliances in your home as feminine or masculine. Of course. And then you would market them appropriately. And air conditioning was thought as a feminine appliance, uh, which they referred to as a white appliance. Um, so other white appliances would include something like the refrigerator, for example, um, or a stove would be considered a white appliance because um, that was the color they designated for feminine products, I guess. But they thought starting in, I think, the early 60s, they kind of started second guessing that and wondering if maybe they had misclassified it and they should have been marketing to men all along. So there became ads for men. These ads might show men carrying air conditioning units. <laughs> Feet or, of strength. <laughs> I don't know why. I guess to show that like they're small and That's portable true, yeah. or something. I don't know. Um, or showing them off to an admiring wife. <laughs> hey, honey, look here. Air conditioning. Yes. Yeah. There was also a string of ads where you would see Mr. Homeowner being the master of climate in his house, <laughs> showing off the impressive controls on the AC unit. The weather will bend to my will. Yeah. I think it's uh, also interesting that when they marketed it towards women, it was like, it's so easy. You just press this button. But to men, it was, look at all these controls. Look at all these buttons. Look at how look complicated, complicated this is. is. Yes. You like that, right? You men like, like complicated that. things, men. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> look at this instruction manual. Uh, much like air conditioning access in movie theaters earlier in the century, unfortunately, race is an issue in advertising and access as well. Most mid-century ads sold directly to white Americans, showcasing white households in white magazines. And this is despite the fact that a large portion of the population in the hottest areas of the country were not white. Uh, people who lived in the South uh, were predominantly black. Black uh, populations were also filling up really crowded, hot city tenement buildings. Uh, so these were people who really needed air conditioning because they lived in very hot conditions. Um, but for whatever reason, there were only scant ads that were geared towards the black population. And even these were introduced much later than the other ads that we just talked about. Um, and they were largely found only in explicitly black publications like Ebony. So they were really missing out on a huge segment of the population to market to for a long time. Additionally, uh, there were some mid-century ads that weren't just exclusionary. Um, they were outright, outright racist. Um, they depicted an idea that temperature climates made men more ambitious and, or sorry, temperate, temperate climates made men more ambitious and productive, which pushed an idea of white Western superiority, that people who were from more temperate areas of the world, which tended to be white Western areas, were somehow better because they had cooler, more temperate temperatures oh boy yeah so they are pretty bad i'm not going to describe any of them but they are pretty bad um this idea by the way was also used during the cold war 
to push air conditioning as a product that would help America come out on top. Defeat communism with yeah. air conditioning. So you mentioned that a few minutes ago. I thought, oh, he doesn't uh-huh. even know. He's totally right. That's, that's so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving into the 70s, air conditioning faced a different sort of blunder, and this had to do with the energy crisis. Energy concerns during the 70s focused on air conditioning usage and temperature settings, despite the fact that it actually wasn't the biggest offender, heating and cars were the worst. Um, Nevertheless, air conditioning became a government target for symbolic and moral responsibility during the energy crises of the 70s. This was especially true with Jimmy Carter, whose administration passed a law requiring public and commercial buildings to keep thermostats set no lower than 80 degrees. Yeah, it's a a bit hot. When people complained, the Energy Department lowered that requirement to 78 degrees. Oh, bless them. (laughs) Huge difference, those two degrees. Uh, At this time, air conditioners also started being designed with energy efficiency in mind, and they were one of the first products that were mandated to be labeled with energy usage information. Even later in the century, like, we have this problem where uh, maybe air conditioners are using too much energy and we shouldn't be using as much, but at the same time, uh, oddly enough... We also had the problem that air conditioning wasn't in places it needed to be. So even later on, there were some places, including hospitals, that were not air conditioned at all. Oh, man. Or people who wouldn't use their air conditioners used to, uh, due to cost. Oh. And this was tragically highlighted by the heat wave of 1980 that claimed at least 1,700 lives. And the heat wave of 1995 that killed over 700 people in Chicago alone. So, I don't know. It's like this push and pull again where we think some people are using it too much, but other people aren't using it at all because they either don't have it or they don't want to use the energy. So there's got to be a happy medium, I guess. Uh, The government tried to offer incentives to get people to adopt air conditioning, but they really, by the time that these incentives passed, they ended up being a sort of a pittance. Um, One bill offered people either $50 or half their July electric bill, whichever was less. (laughs) Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that's not going to be encouraging. not really, yeah. Um, Nevertheless, air conditioning usage continued to grow throughout the rest of the century. Today, a home in the U.S. is more likely to have air conditioning than it is to have a dishwasher or a garage. Wow. 75% of U.S. homes now have air conditioning. And that percentage is probably higher in in certain regions. uh, And it's lowered overall by areas where air conditioning isn't common for a variety of reasons. Well, some friends of ours lived in Georgia for a time, right on the coast, and I remember asking him, how how do you get by in the summer months? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, it's real simple. We just never go outside. <laughs> yeah. We just never, yeah. never go out there. So I'm sure in places like that, it's almost 100% uh, air conditioning. And that's evened out, though, by places that largely don't have it. Um, some of these places don't need it as much. For example, for a long time, Seattle was considered the least air-conditioned city in the U.S. Only about half of their homes have it. 
but there are other cities that could probably use it and they don't for other reasons. For example, in New York City, a lot of apartment buildings were built before air conditioning was common in homes uh, and the law doesn't require landlords to provide it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you'd have to retrofit the whole building. And that's really expensive. Yeah, and they don't have to, so they're not going to do it. Uh, that's also true in Los Angeles. However, that may change soon uh, because at the end of May, uh, the, I might get this wrong, but I think it was the city council, but it might have been some other governing body uh, started a move to require landlords to provide air conditioning. And that's not happened yet, but it's moving in that direction. Well, let's go back to 1936, all the way from today back to 1936, because I want to share with you uh, a prediction that Willis Carrier himself made. The average businessman will rise, pleasantly refreshed, having slept in an air-conditioned room. He will travel in an air-conditioned train and toil in an air-conditioned office, store, or factory, or dine in an air-conditioned restaurant. In fact, the only time he will know anything about heat waves or arctic blasts will be when he exposes himself to the natural discomforts of out of doors. Nice. And he was so right. He was on the money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's all for us today. Thank you for listening. Hypnotic History is researched by me, Ashley Skidmore, with music and technical wizardry by the vibrant Andrew Logan Skidmore. Follow us on Instagram by searching for hypnotic.history or by clicking the link in the episode description. Until next week, listeners, peace and love. <laughs>